This episode of Agency Deal Masters is brought to you by Account Insight, the B2B programmatic advertising platform for B2B agencies. Account Insight helps you deliver targeted, tailored ads to high-value companies because today's B2B buyer decides digitally and in teams of up to 40 people. Account Insight helps you solve the problem of marketing to whole accounts, not just to one person. That's why smarter B2B marketers use account-based advertising. Founded by former WPP executives with extensive experience building and delivering B2B solutions, several friends of the show and leading B2B agencies use Account Insight to deliver targeted ads. You can find out more at accountinsight.ai. This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest for our series on the future of media, advertising, and ABM. Ricky Abbott is the president of Americas for Transmission, not only one of the biggest B2B agencies in the country, they have their sights on becoming the biggest and best B2B agency in the world. And this is just a masterclass on all things ABM and the future of B2B marketing. Transmission have clients like Dropbox, Maersk, Oracle, VMware, HPE, just got down the list of some of the biggest B2B brands in the world. They have so many awards from the likes of the drum and B2B marketing and, and LinkedIn. It's hard to really keep up. And Ricky takes all of the fluff and nonsense out of ABM and breaks it down in a way that is so simple and straightforward that it's a wonder why other agencies don't talk about ABM in the same sort of way. I mean, he explains in very simple language what the different interpretations of ABM are and why they're wrong and how really we should be thinking about ABM. We talked about the role of data, GDPR considerations, how to expand overseas as an agency. He now lives in sunny California. What a shame. Um, by the way, this series is brought to you by the great guys at Account Insight, the B2B programmatic advertising platform for B2B agencies. Check them out at accountinsight.ai. If you are even remotely interested in B2B marketing, ABM, overseas expansion as an agency, and the evolution of a phenomenal B2B marketing agency in transmission, then you will find this conversation to be absolutely fascinating. So Without me keeping you in suspense any further, my conversation with Ricky Abbott. Ricky Abbott is the president of Americas for Transmission. He works with clients across the technology sphere to help them link inbound, outbound, and marketing technology together to unify their marketing activity and identify the value that it's delivering. He has worked with many large Fortune 500 brands to build true revenue generation marketing engines, whether that's combining brand with demand gen, creating account-based marketing solutions. He now lives and works in San Francisco, setting up a division there where he moved two years ago. I'm very much looking forward to the conversation. Ricky Abbott, welcome to Agency Dealmasters. Thanks, Mason. Thanks for having me. Yeah, really, uh, really good speaking to you again. We spoke a few years ago when um, I met yourself and Chris actually in London and things have changed a little bit since then, which we'll get into. We've got so much to talk about, everything from where B2B marketing is now, where it's going, ABM, what clients want from their agencies today. And also we'll talk about transmission because it seems as though you're on a on a, uh, a mission to sort of take over the world at the moment. But let's start with your career and background. You're very commercially focused, holding sales and new business roles at Read, Business Information, Net Communities, DWA, and now Transmission. How did you make your way into the world of sales and marketing? It all actually starts with my mother, <laughs> um, as a lot of careers probably do. So I left university didn't do anything to do with marketing, didn't do anything to do with sales, worked in did computer science and decided to go traveling with my friends before I started a career. My mum basically said to me, you must get a job before you leave. I don't want to hear anything else. <laughs> and so back in those days, this was actually just as the internet was taking off. I went through Guardian jobs, found a whole bunch of different roles. I didn't really know what I was applying for, to be brutally honest and apply for a lot of roles. Uh, one of those was a sales role. Again, didn't really know what I was doing when it came to sales. I was very naive and ended up in, the, in a role at a company called Sterling Publications, SPG Media, very hard-nosed sales environment. Uh, was sat in a room with 14 other people, very much like a boiler room style uh, interview. 
at the time I thought I was amazing, got the job. Uh, now looking back on it, I realized that they give the job to most people <laughs> if you can, uh, if you can talk. Uh, and so if yeah, you can breathe, if you can breathe, yeah, pretty much. Um, and so I got into the job and lasted there a few years, then went to read business information, had a few years there as well. Really, really good time there. Um, went to net communities, bit of a blip and then, uh, ended up at, uh, DWA where I met Chris, who's the CEO of Transmission and, uh, the rest is history, as I say. The rest is history. So then how did you make the transition from sales to marketing? When I first started at Transmission, myself and Chris, we had this conversation around me moving from more of a commercial role into more of a strategy role. Um, I'd always been very, very keen on it at DWA. I'd noticed that the value that strategy brings to clients outweighs far anything else that you can do. And more importantly, I think in B2B, sales and marketing are two sides of the same coin. If you think about the clients that we work for in marketing in B2B, sales is so important. It's not like B2C where everything goes through this narrow window where marketing effectively controls the sales. In B2B, you have a very, very complex environment where you have sellers, you have marketers. And so in, in effect, in B2B marketing, marketing is there to generate the hook, sales is there to close. And so in that sense, having both sales and marketing background has been very, very, very helpful for me. And it's allowed me to be able to empathize with our clients, what they're going through and understand what's actually going to be important and valuable to our clients when running marketing programs. Let's talk a little bit about transmission in more, in more detail then, because you've been with the business for about seven years. You're now president of America's living in San Francisco. You went there to actually set up the U.S. division. What problems does transmission solve for its clients? We've been pretty lucky in the seven years that we've been in, uh, eight years, sorry, that we've been in existence. Lucky insofar as we've worked with very large B2B organizations. Typically, these large B2B organizations are very, very, very siloed. And what we've been lucky enough to be able to help them with is to drive that connected customer experience. If you think about some of the companies we work with, the HPs, the HPEs, the VMwares, the Citrix, the Nutanix of this world, they're very large organizations and they are very siloed in turn or they can become very siloed internally and so one of the things they're often trying to do is how do we drive these connected customer experiences how do we drive them at scale how do we drive them at speed whilst being innovative now often i think a lot of people that maybe listen to this may think well you can't physically do a lot of those things i actually disagree i think you can i really really do think you can but you it's it's not easy it's really challenging um and so what we're there to do is to help unify that customer experience. I think over the years, one of the challenges we found, being very honest with you, you know, we're, we're, we're the biggest independent B2B marketing agency in the world now. And one of the challenges we found as a business is trying to ensure that we are as integrated internally as possible so that we don't pass that siloed nature onto our clients. Give us an example of, of what that means then. So what's an example of a connected customer experience, either from a client that you've worked with or maybe one that you haven't? What should a connected customer experience look like? Yeah, so that's <laughs> a good question. Uh, so, so for me, I think what happens a lot of times is clients will employ siloed agencies or agencies with a specific skill set, or even internally they have like, a brand team, a demand team, a Marcoms team, a media team, a content team. By the nature of what I've just said to you, there's teams for each of these things. And in some of these large organizations, they don't always connect the dots. They don't always even sometimes know what the other team are doing. And so take away the client's infrastructure and start thinking about it as a customer. Let's look at it as a customer. If you're a customer and you're getting these communications that may not seem connected in the ability to you, that's going to affect your customer experience. A really good example of this is if you take a piece of content that's early stage in the funnel, if you will, uh, or it's early stage in a customer's journey, you're driving that via email, via programmatic, via paid social, via uh, native as a good example. This is all linked to a creative theme that you have. Then when somebody engages with that, you then drive that into a sales environment and the sales motion is very is linked back to that creative concept and to that piece of content is also taking into consideration all the other things that that business has done. E.g. they may have gone to an event last week. 
one of their colleagues may have downloaded a white paper or gone to see a webinar. And so all of a sudden, what we're showing with that connected customer experience is you have more knowledge about that client. You're able to drive a connected customer experience amongst multiple touch points within that account. You're able to link the concept, the brand, through to demand, through to content, and you're driving that same intelligence into your sellers. So it's a unified customer experience. It's not a disparate experience. And to give you a, a, a good example of how this maybe doesn't work, large companies, some large companies, what they'll do is they'll have multiple campaigns. They'll have their brand campaign. They'll have a demand gen campaign. They'll have multiple demand gen campaigns. And sometimes at the very basic level, let's just be very, very basic about this. You look at those multiple campaigns and they don't even look similar. You wouldn't even know they came from the same company. Hmm. That at the very foundation is how is not a connected customer experience. But a lot of businesses do this. We, you know, we hear this a lot in our in, in clients that we start to work with. They're like, hey, we run 15 campaigns. And then we look at the campaigns and we're like, well, I understand the problem that some of these companies have is that the definition of what a campaign is isn't necessarily accurate. It's two pieces of content and loads of activity. And that's not really a campaign. Right. This is made even harder by the fact that, you know, a lot of these organizations are operating in so many different regions around the world. How do you then connect that customer experience across Asia, Europe, America, South America? I was speaking to the guys at the um, Expandy Group recently, and, and they ran, ran into that, that very problem. You know, they were telling us that they spread themselves too thinly. They were trying to be this globally connected B2B agency, but they had so many difficulties sort of talking to Japan at the same time talking to EMEA, at the same time talking to America, and having, you know, being able to localize and regionalize all of that content became very, very difficult and it spread them really thinly. How do you do that when an organization is operating across border in many different geographies? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I'm not going to say, you know, the guys at Expanding Group, I think, have uh, hit, hit, hit a, a sore point, right? Um, I'm not going to say we've got it completely correct. I think we've, we're, we're definitely doing the right things for our clients at the moment. Um, it's not easy, and it definitely doesn't mean that sometimes we're efficient as a business. Um, I think for us, we're a pretty young business. We're only seven years old, and because we're pretty young, we still have that connective tissue between all of our offices. Um, it means that a lot of our offices do actually talk to each other. We talk to each other regularly when we're building programs. How is this program going to work? This is going to work in Germany, in France, in Japan, in China, in Singapore, in Australia. So we, we have the, the luck that we're not a 20-year-old business that has 7,000 people across all of our offices. And so they don't even know who the other, other locations are. I think one of the other regions, reasons that we, we've managed to stay integrated for us has been that um, the leaders that we have in each of the businesses are known entities, if that makes sense. E.g., I moves from the UK, so I know everyone in the UK. I also know everyone in APAC. And so there's that, there's that camaraderie, I guess, if, if you get my point. Hmm. However, just going back to a very basic level, we, we talk to our regions. When we talk to our regions, we use that insight alongside our strategy to build these global programs. We then do allow the re well, not allow, but then the regions will take those programs and wherever they're invented, uh, will take those programs and localize for their local market, which is only the right thing to do. You have to be able to do that. Um, but the key thing is ensuring at, at a centralized point, wherever that central point is, that you're creating that connected customer experience that all the geos are bought into every stage you're going through. When you're building personas, when you're building messaging, when you're doing content audits, when you're getting into content recommendations, all the regions are bought into every stage there. Let's let's talk a little bit about ABM, everyone's favorite subject <laughs> and everyone's subject that everyone has a different opinion on, because you can understand why clients are confused, right? One person talks about one to one, one talks, one talks about one to many, one to few. Explain what the different interpretations of ABM are and how does transmission define it? Yeah. Okay. Uh, we'll try not to spend the next two hours on this. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, look, I think, um, I, I think at a very, very high level, let's just talk about what ABM is, because I think the M in ABM often puts people off because it, 
account-based marketing says this is a marketing initiative and it's not really you know a lot of people have tried to reinvent it into abe and abs and absm and i think none of them are really st- stuck because abm is very catchy it's always been here um but a- abm by nature is a business direction it's not it shouldn't be thought of as a marketing strategy and i think that's the first thing that people need to get their heads around once you think about it as a business direction and not just a marketing strategy I think automatically you're going to think about it in a different way. I then think the, the one of the issues that a lot of clients, a lot of marketers are having around the world, a lot of people are having around the world, is that the natural inclination at the moment, especially given the sheer number of ways in which to engage a potential audience, is they move straight to tactics. Hey, ABM is all about programmatic. ABM is all about social. ABM is all about... Email, ABM is all about web personalization. And, and those are tactics. Those are the channels in which we use to engage a customer. ABM should be more about the business direction. Why are you engaging ABM in the first place? What are you trying to do? What is your business that you're trying to achieve? Are you trying to grow revenue from existing customers? Are you trying to win net new customers? How big are those net new customers? Are you just trying to focus on the Fortune 2000? You know, what is your business direction? And that can help you say, okay, ABM is the right thing for me as a business. What's the definition of ABM? It's focusing on key accounts with a very direct message. Um, And a good analogy that I think um, uh, John Miller at Demandbase now often uses is, it's the difference between hunting with a spear versus hunting with a net, right? You're trying to be as focused as possible in your messaging to those customers. And so the big difference in ABM or the various layers in ABM are, you know, the traditional layers, you get one to many, which is very much persona based, one to few, which is sometimes vertical or segment based or competitive attack based, one to one, which is very, I'm going after one customer. And the difference between each of these is scale. At the one to many level, you're going after lots of customers. And so by nature, what you're more doing is personalizing your content to them, e.g. Hi, Nathan. At agency deal masters, you know, very much talking about to you and the company you work at and maybe the vertical you're in. Mm. As you get further up, I start to understand more about the vertical. Hey, Nathan, at agency deal masters, you're in marketing, specifically within B2B. Now I'm getting a bit more focused. And at the one to one level, I'm actually getting a lot more customized. So, what we call customized at the top, where I'm saying, hey, Nathan, at agency deal masters, working B2B marketing can be challenging, especially when trying to build a podcast i'm just making this up for the purpose sure. of this conversation but you see the difference <laughs> i can tell <laughs> right <laughs> but you can see that you can see the differences between those different layers and so we talk about personalization very much at the bottom and we talk about customization right at the top and that's the big big thing that i think a lot of people are sort of challenged with at the moment really interesting so i guess that leads back then to the importance of data because you're only able to do that level of personalization if you have the right data, which notoriously a lot of big B2B brands don't. Um, This is made even more difficult by the fact that there are a number of uh, stakeholders involved in making large, complex decisions, security, IT, procurement, marketing, finance, go down the list. Everyone's weighing in. Everyone's got an opinion. Nobody wants to make the decision as well and put their head on the chopping block. So even one person in that decision-making unit of nine or 10 people can veto the decision and then you're back to swear one. In that environment, how do deals even happen in B2B marketing? It boggles me. Nathan, you've, you've hit it on the head, right? You've, you've basically summarized what, what ABM really is. Um, if you think about data and insight, I think there's a big thing here. Again, a lot of marketers will focus very heavily on data. And data is important, absolutely vital, but so is insight. And depending on where you are in that layer, uh, so whether you're one-to-one or one-to-many, the the reliance on data versus insight is going to be slightly different. So at the one-to-many, as you're going broader, as you're going to a much broader list, you're going to persona-based, you may leverage third-party intent data. You may leverage install-based data. You may leverage customer experience data that you have as first-party. As you get further up into the echelons of one-to-one, that's where you're going to get more into the sales world, where you're going to talk more and more into sales. And so actually what's really important at that layer is insight. So 
I'll give you a good example. If you talk to a B2B seller at a large enterprise organization and they're focused on trying to win a deal with Wells Fargo, hmm. going to them and saying, hey, Wells Fargo, we're looking at content around uh, data storage or around B2B marketing. I'm, I'm again, I'm making this up. Um, it's not going to be that engaging to them. They're going to be, okay, that's great. But actually going to them and saying, well, Wells Fargo's in business imperative in the next two years is to virtualize 70% of their infrastructure. They've got a massive issue around compliance due to a few data, re recent data leaks, and they've recently reorged their business. You should be focusing here, here, and here. All of a sudden, that's a very, very engaging conversation for a seller. Obviously, you can't do that type of unique one-to-one -one style engagement at scale. That's very, very challenging, especially if you've got multiple thousands of companies. And that's the, certainly the case here in the US. So data and insight is absolutely crucial. What's really key is how you leverage it to feed these programs and then how you leverage data and insight across the entire program. So everything from your strategy and insight, which is what I just talked about, from your creative. And again, a lot of people don't think about how you use data in creative. They're often like, oh, you don't need to use data in creative. I actually disagree. You can definitely use it. You just have to have the right types of people in the business. How you leverage data to create content. Again, you know, a big area that people don't always focus on. Hmm. And then I think where people are very comfortable is how you leverage data in, in tactics. People are very comfortable here. They talk about, hey, let's use third-party segments to buy audiences through programmatic. People are very, very used to that. That's a very common experience. But again, to my point I made right at the start about connected customer experience, you're starting to see, hopefully, how data and insight can link every discipline within the, an ABM marketing and sales program to drive that connected customer experience from strategy, content, creative, activation, analytics, sales enablement. As long as you're using that data and insight in every single piece, it can flow through and then connect all the way back as well. So it's that never-ending loop. Let's talk about transmission in a bit more detail and specifically the future of transmission, which is something that we discussed with Chris Bragnall. He was a previous guest on the show a few months ago. Um, as you think about the future of the business, what's the natural next step in the evolution of the business? I mean, you've already said that you're the biggest independent B2B agency in the world right now. What's the natural next step in the evolution of transmission? I think an interesting uh, point you actually mentioned, Nathan, earlier about the Expandy Group, which is they're spread really thin. As you say, we are the largest independent agency, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we've got total depth in all of our services or complete evolution in all of our services. And so I think for us, we, we've been pretty fortunate in the position that clients put us in, which is they pose head scratches. I had a client yesterday night say to us, hey, I've got this problem. I don't know where to even go to solve this problem, but here's a problem. I need to solve I need to solve a problem I had with last mile selling. I need to try and help my last mile sellers in a COVID world convert more of their pipeline. That's not really the kind of thing that a client will always pose to an agency, but we're very lucky that we are. And what that often means is that we have to think outside the box. Um, that's very good for us because it links very clearly to our brand values around innovation and, and agility. Um, and what that means is that as we start to think of the future or as we think of the future, we're never thinking about what we can do right now. We're thinking about what are the problems that our clients are going to give us in the future? E.g., what are the problems that our clients are giving us because of COVID is a good example? And what kind of hires do we need to make? Um, one of, the, one of the really big mantras we've had as a business often is that we look at hires that we need, but when we meet people that we think, hey, do you know what? They might, not be able, they might be able to do the role that I've asked them to do, but they might also be able to do three other things that we haven't, we've got on our roadmap that aren't necessarily the things that we're hiring for as of today, but it's a really good opportunity. Interesting. So let's bring that person on board and that will help mold where the next evolution of our business is. You know, as an agency, we're as good as our people. We're ultimately as good as our people. And so the evolution of the business is going to be in the direction of what our clients ask us to do today, but also understanding what our clients are going to be asking us to do in the future. And that's a, that's a challenge. And that's where we need to evolve and bring depth into the services that we offer to our clients. So you talk about hires there. Let's talk about that for, for a moment, because you're only as good as your people, as, you, as you've said. What have you learned over the years about 
what it takes to build a team that can help execute for both transmission and for your clients. What's your hiring process? How do you think about the right skills and behaviors of the right team members in order to take you where you want to go? Yeah, um, it's a question laced with a lot of di different layers, right? So I think one thing, it obviously depends on the, on the maturity of your business. Again, I've been lucky insofar as I was, I was at Transmission pretty much at the, since the start. And so in the UK, I was lucky to be part of how we grew the business in the UK and how we hire, what the types of levels we hired at what, at what point in the maturity of the business. And then here in the US, I've had the same, to do the same, very much the same, which is you, you, you cut according to your cloth. You hire the right levels as the business needs at the time. So could you give us an example of that just before you go on? What level of hire were you looking at for the first couple of years versus the next stage of growth versus the next milestone? Could you just give us a flavor of what you mean by that? I guess when you're, when you're starting a business and it's small, you absolutely need to get your hands dirty. You, as the leader, have to be able to get into the weeds. And often you're going to be the strategist. You're going to be the media director. You're going to be the content director. You're going to do... The tea maker. Yeah, pretty much. You know, you're going to do everything. You know, your account director, your account manager, account sure. exec. You have to be able to get your own hands dirty, very much so. But obviously you can't do that as you grow a business, that's just not possible. So what you have to be able to do is to hire the right people to support you as you grow the business. Um, the way personally, I, I, you know, I grew here in the US and we grew in the UK was to um, get people to help us from a scale perspective at the, at the start of the business because we didn't necessarily have the revenues to go and hire big hitters straight out of the gates. And mm. you know, there's also an element of risk out there. Now, in the US versus the UK, we took a slightly different tact in the U U US, certainly, um, we did end up hiring some pretty senior people very quickly. Um, and it's been interesting, I guess, um, that, that those senior hires have helped me to stabilize the business, helped me to deliver really great work. And, and, and to be honest with you, helped tell me when I'm wrong. You know, I don't always have all the answers. I really, really don't. And I trust and I want the people around me to be able to tell me that, I'm wrong that this is a better way because I just don't have all the answers. You know, I, I, I have my experiences that are my experiences and they, they, they've definitely molded me today, but I don't always have the answers. I guess the biggest thing for me though, this, what this all ladders back to is having a vision. You need to have a strategic direction of where you want the business to go. And for me, for Chris, we've always been very clear in what we what we're trying to do, where we're trying to go. It's fine if that path changes slightly or the course changes slightly, but knowing what your North Star is, where you want to end up is really important. And by binding up, I'm not talking about whether you want to sell the business or whatever that is. I'm more talking about what you want to be as an agency. What do you want to do for your customers? And, you know, even in my sales part of my role, the one thing that was constant for me always was I never really chased the money. And I don't think we as a business really are, are that way minded. I appreciate we, we may come across as commercially, but that's what we're always trying to do is trying to do the best thing for our customer and our customer's customer. Everything else will flow from that. Mm. Everything else will flow from that. And so the way we've built the business is always thinking about what is the best experience for our customer's customer? What is the best thing for our customer? How do we, how do we mold and drive the business? And that has helped us to have the right type of hiring process. I think the, the other key thing then is as much as having a vision and getting your hands dirty, uh, it's have patience. You know, <laughs> there was uh, somebody in a, when I was at RBI, uh, my sales director at the time uh, once said to me that I'm a bull in a china shop and I'm definitely the least patient, one of the least patient person people in the world. Um, but, and I've had to temper that. Mm. But that patience is key. It's ensuring that people, the people that you hire are allowed the time to be able to pick things up. Uh, allow the time to be able to flourish. Um, and, you know, wh when I said that hands dirty uh, methodology, that's not just a mantra for me. That's a mantra I try to ask every single person in my leadership team and every person in the business um, to have, which is be willing to roll your sleeves up. Because in my view, you need to have depth. You know, I talked about depth before. You need to have depth. A good example is being a strategist. If you're a strategist, but you have no experience whatsoever of delivery, you don't know anything about execution of any programs, 
not really a true strategist because you may actually end up building a program. And, and we've had this experience in the past where you build a program, you send it to the media team. Doesn't work. The media team go, <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. I, ca I can't buy against that audience. Why not? It's too small. Oh, but you've sold this great strategy to a client. A client's now totally bought into that. Mm. And so again, that comes back to that sort of connected customer experience and you know having a link between everything you do. Let's talk a little bit about US expansion because you've been in the US now for two years. Um, San Francisco, I think it is. I'm so jealous right now, uh, recording this from Birmingham. But anyway, you've been in, <laughs> uh, in the US for two years. You've got 60 people in multiple locations. What factors went into that decision to expand overseas? Yeah, again, you know, as I said right at the start, we've been very lucky and fortunate that a lot of our clients are very large enterprises. Um, as it so happens, a lot of our large enterprise clients are based in the United States and specifically in Silicon Valley. And so many years ago, well, not many years ago now, three years ago, uh, myself and Chris used to, well, actually throughout the history of the business, myself and Chris would fly to the US quite a lot. We'd go at least once a quarter. And every time we'd come here, we'd always walk away with a different mindset, with a very much more, wow, there's a lot more things to consider when you're talking to US clients. And I'm not, this is not belittling what we do in EMEA. In EMEA, I actually think what we do is amazing, amazing work, but it's just a lot more things that we have to consider, a lot more factors that we like haven't what? necessarily was. Uh, I guess scale is a big thing, right? You talked about it very much at the start, what Expanded Group came up with, which was when you're trying to service the globe, as an example, that's a big challenge. You're trying to create these campaigns and a lot of our clients have this challenge. I'm trying to create this campaign in Silicon Valley and then I'm trying to roll it out across multiple locations that some locations they may not have been to, they don't necessarily know that well. And that can be challenging. That, that is often a challenge. And so some of the things that are going through their mind are not the same things that we're trying to focus on in EMEA. Sometimes in EMEA, what we're trying to focus on is getting our program to work for our region. And, some, and, and sometimes we're not very patient. And I, I certainly experienced this when I was in EMEA. We're not always very patient with the global function. But it's important to understand some of the complexity that they're having to deal with every single day. And so it was always really interesting coming to the US and, and, and talking to the global uh, counterparts to some of our clients. And so I think, you know, three years ago, <laughs> me and Chris would always say we should, we should open. I would always say to, we should, we should, we should open. He was always saying, no, it's not the right time. And he was definitely right. Um, and then Chris went away on holiday um, and came back and basically said, look, I think we should do it. Who should, who should do it? And we looked around the business. <laughs> <laughs> I, I imagine he probably, I, I imagine he probably, he had an idea. Looking like, at you. Want, yeah, right. I, yeah I, I imagine he probably was. But who should do it, Yeah, he, that's not how he positioned it at all. He, it was very much a conversation. It was like, who do you think we should do it? Um, you know, I've actually never talked to him about it and asked him, but uh, it was very much a kind of conversation. And uh, I, I think I was the only person in, in life stage that could physically do it. Annoyingly, I just bought a house. <laughs> I just spent a lot of money doing up a house, um, which was annoying. But yeah. uh, I was the only person that could physically do it. And for me, it was an experience that was probably the right thing to do at the time in my career. Um, and then at the same point, we had a lot of clients that were saying, hey, we'd love to take these programs over to the US. Mm. Obviously, there's a very big difference in saying that and doing that. But that definitely was a key driver in our, in our thinking. Really, really interesting. So what have you noticed about the way business is done in the US compared to the UK? I mean, you, you mentioned a couple of differences there, but anything else that you'd like to share in your two-year experience so far? Well, I can tell I'm getting a lot more American in, in the words I say and the way I speak. I can tell you that <laughs> much. I use words like lever now. I, you know, uh, again, I was on a call with a colleague and uh, I said, use the word lever. And they were like, lever? You mean lever? <laughs> and I was like, and I had to be honest with them. I was like, sorry, which one? Oh, the yeah. Right one? Is, it, is it lever or lever? And they were like, lever is the right. Uh, right. No, no. Yeah, anyway. So um, aside from language nuances, and I, you know what? Actually, you know, I joke, I jest, but actually I think that's a really key point. When I moved here to the US, we speak the same language, is language but we're very different cultures. And... I think culturally that was a challenge. You know, moving country personally for me was very, very, very challenging with a young family. But more importantly, it was challenging in terms of how to 
engage with clients. Now, I think people here in Silicon Valley, especially, are very used to dealing with people from all over the world. And so they're very, very used to having to deal with different cultures. Um, again, another challenge that I never considered before. Um, for me, hmm. I think it was a bit more challenging. Now, um, I, 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 I guess the biggest thing that I would say is that, and the biggest thing that's affected my thinking is scale, just the sheer scale. Give you a very good example. We talked about ABM. There's a thousand companies over a thousand company size in the UK, give or take. In the US, there's tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, hundreds of thousands of companies above a thousand company size. Hmm. So when you Amazing. talk scale, the scale is just is, on another level. It is on another level. And so the things that drive the thinking for people here in the US is very different to the things that drive thinking in EMEA. I think also what I've experienced is the sheer siloed nature of clients. In EMEA, often, if you're the EMEA marketing director, you have to be a CMO of your region. You have to know a lot about a lot. You have to know about programmatic, paid social, email, blah, 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 blah. Whereas over here in the US, you'll go to a company and they'll have, they might have a VP for the region for demand. They might have also a VP for brand. They might also have a VP for programmatic. They might also have a VP for content. They might also have a, a creative director. And so there's lots of people to talk to. There's lots of different functions. And so to my point earlier, if you're talking about account-based marketing, which is a business imperative, you have to talk to all those individuals. You don't just have to talk to one. You have to talk to a lot of those individuals. Hmm. One of the challenges we found when we first arrived here was trying to integrate a lot of those different functions together to drive a better outcome for the business through a connected customer experience. Hmm. Really, really fascinating. Ricky, I could talk to you about this all day. There's a million questions that we didn't get a chance to get to. We're going to have to get you back on the show. Uh, but let's get into everyone's favorite questions now. These are the questions that I ask all my guests. So I'm excited to ask you some of them as well. I'm going to choose some of them at random, fire them at you, see where we start here. Um, what do you do to keep mentally and physically fit? I saw that you recently bought a Peloton. <laughs> yeah so i'll be honest covid has definitely been very challenging for me um i used to love going to the gym um mostly because i probably need to because i love food but uh <laughs> um but i used to enjoy going to the gym it was my time just to focus and obviously not going to be able to go to the gym it's different for the uk i think the uk had gyms that were open here they're closing and you can't go to them at all so uh, I bought at Christmas my little Christmas present to myself a gym, um, not not anything amazing, but you know weights and all that kind of stuff. And I bought a Peloton. So yeah, mm -hmm. definitely I uh, like to take a little bit of time to myself. I find that that just gives me focus. It gives me a bit of time away from the business because it's so easy just to spend fifteen hours in front of your laptop working endlessly. And so that's a good way just to mentally disconnect as well as physically keep fit. It is. And by the way, so my fiance took me to a spa retreat a few months ago. I hated it because I don't really like those things anyway. But they had a Peloton room and I spent most of my time in there. And that was my first experience with a Peloton. And I have to say, I am going to buy a Peloton. They are <laughs> amazing. They, I, I, you know, it's just the classes, the recorded sessions, they're really engaging, the trainers uh as, by the way i'm not sponsored by peloton i'm just this is just my genuine feeling but it's an amazing piece of kit um i'm so with you I, i'm not a massive cycling fan if i'm honest i did a couple of spinning sessions in the uk but i got bored <laughs> right. quick but peloton i find really engaging it's like the it's, it appeals to, it appeals to anyone's like if you're competitive there's a bit there that's competitive for you if you just like cycling there's a lot around cycling mm. like, like you i'm not sponsored by peloton but i think it's a really really good thing as well <laughs> by the way they're great marketing because we're just doing their marketing for them and we're not getting paid for it so <laughs> yeah. yeah uh their brand is fan fantastic amazon prime or netflix or disney or hulu or um what else is available in the us that you're watching what are you watching or streaming that's good so you know uh, an interesting thing that you have here in the us that you don't have it or at least i've experienced is in the uk you have like BBC One, BBC Two, ITV, Channel Four, Channel Five. Yeah. Uh, and then you have Sky, right? Here, there is so many channels and you have to subscribe to each of them. 
CBS, NBS, Peacock. Mm. There's just so many of mm. them, right? And then you've got the Amazons, the Netflix, the Disney Pluses as well. It's very confusing, or at least I find it very confusing. And so, um, but I'm pretty simple. Um, so for me, I have all of the above, just to make sure I'm, I'm, I'm comfortable. I've, <laughs> You're covered. Yeah, we have Amazon Prime, we have Netflix, we have HBO Max. Uh, we don't have BBC, wow. annoyingly. We can't have that. Um, but, you know, being, a, being an 80s child, I've recently been watching Cobra Kai, no, it's sad. And okay. I don't want to admit that, but um, I, I love that very much. And I, I heard it's really, really good. It's really good. I really like it. it you know, if, you, if you're if you an 80s child, you're going to love it. If you've seen it as a kid, yeah. you're going to love it. Karate kid. So, yeah, yeah. definitely. Um, Amazon, I've been watching this program called Catastrophe. It's about uh, a, a Brit and Ameri- an American, and it's uh, very, very interesting. Uh, it's very funny. I'm, I'm genuinely into anything with a comedy angle, so uh, uh, yeah, yeah. it's a comedy. It's, it's very good. I like it a lot. Oh, you, you'll love Superstore. If you like comedy, especially if you like dry comedy, like something like The Office or like the US or the, or the British comedy. I love The Office. You should check out Superstore. It's based on an American Superstore, like supermarket. And it is hilarious. A lot of the similar characters to what you have in The Office, but it's just newer and fresher and touches on a lot of things to do with COVID and diversity. Uh, really Super, fascinating. Superstore. Yeah, Superstore Super. on Netflix. On Netflix. Okay, I'll watch that. I didn't even see that, but okay. I'm going to watch that. That's Check it out. My list. Thank really you for that. In, in the last three to five years, what ideas, behaviors, or habits have you added or removed from your life that have improved your outcomes? So <clears throat> I, I, I'm, I, I guess maybe talk about added. Um, and I'm not sure it's three to five. It's probably in the lifetime that I've been at Transmission. But uh, yeah, I think I've probably added in the last three to five years is a whiteboard. <laughs> Now, COVID has really, really been a thing. A whiteboard. I, yeah, I really miss using a whiteboard during COVID. And uh, so, so most of the things that I've always done, that I've always done, you know, I like to keep fit, I like to cook, I like to go out and watch films, all that sort of stuff. Right. From a business perspective and what have I done there, I often find that as, you've, as I've grown in the business, I've, it's really challenging to get my thoughts onto, into a structured format because often you're having to, you know, as I said to you before, if you're running, if you're starting a business in, an, in a new geo, as an example, you're having to be a bit of everyone. You're having to be an account director, you're having to be a strategist, your content director, finance guy, a bit of everything. And so having clarity of thought can often be challenging. Um, I'm very, very big into visualizing what that needs to be, writing down lists and visualizing the destination. It helps me to, to go, right, what should I be prioritizing my time on? What should I be focusing on? Mm. But one of the things I miss now, uh, and a big thing for me has always been whiteboards. You know, everyone in my t- if, if anyone in my team listens to this, they will laugh heavily uh, because they always joke about it. I love nothing more than having a whiteboard, drawing up <laughs> a vision for the business, for what I'm trying to do. And love it. Getting everyone along and, you know, yeah. saying, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? And, you know, just, just whiteboarding up. And that's one thing I miss a lot. By the way, like the power of someone that holds a whiteboard pen in their hand and starts scribbling on a whiteboard, automatically everyone thinks that they're in charge. It's just there's some kind of power dynamic. When you start writing on a whiteboard, everyone's like, yep, he's the person that knows where we're going. Um, so I, I totally, I totally uh, go along with that. I never thought about that. That's a brilliant point. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It is. Um, if you want to, if you want to look like you know what you're talking about, start writing on a whiteboard, and people automatically think that's my trick anyway for my team. Um, oh, and believe me, believe me, Nathan, I need to look like I know what I'm talking about because I obviously don't. Know <laughs> Last couple of questions, and I'll let you go. What advice would you give to a young person or a millennial who wants to start their career in a B two B marketing agency? I think. Um, if I was if I was working in an agency, what I'd what I'd want to do now is work in as many different functions across an agency as possible, from content, creative, account management, media, uh, sales, activation, analytics. I think there's nothing better than getting a broad range of skills, mm. because then when you're starting to build programs, when you're starting to uh, work with sales teams when you're starting to talk to content teams you have empathy and understanding for what they what they're going through and i think empathy and understanding is a big big factor for a lot of the things that we do mm. people talk about i'm creating content i'm creating a creative i'm doing media activation but you have to be empathetic for what your clients are going through and that will help 
everything you do from a strategy perspective or from or whatever you're putting forward to your clients. And so having that, having that varied role, I think is really important. And especially going back to my earlier point, it helps you to be not to not be siloed, even though sometimes organizations may be. Hmm. Really interesting. And, and my final question, Ricky, what is it you know about B2B marketing and ABM today that you wish you knew at the beginning of your career? Look, I'm a big believer in things happen for a reason. Um, you go down a path for a specific reason. I wouldn't change anything about my career and what's happened to date um, because who knows what that would have made me as a person or where I would be in my life. But one of the things that I wish I had known and it's not to make my career get get to my career quicker or anything like that, but is I wish I would have known the, the scale and the complexity of B2B marketing. I think what's happened as I've gone through my career is I've learned it as an additive process, e.g. I learned media, I learned sales, I learned things as I went through my career. And I'm constantly learning now. I'm still learning. I never stop. But I wish I would have understood what the – I wish somebody would have sat me down and said, this is a blueprint for B2B marketing. And this is where ABM sits within B2B marketing. Mm. And so I could understand what it looks like as a grand vision. And then I can forge my career. Whereas I think actually what I've done is I've forged my path fairly haphazardly and just fallen into the right things at the right time that have allowed me to have that broader vision. Interesting. As I said before, I love a whiteboard and I love a blueprint. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely love it. Ricky, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you, Nathan, for having me. We have been speaking with Ricky Abbott. He is currently the president of America's at Transmission. If you enjoyed this conversation, then head over to Apple Podcasts where you can listen to over 115 such conversations we've had now with world-class leaders in B2B and ABM. Thank you for all your feedback on LinkedIn and email. Write to me at nathan.agencydealmasters.com. Please leave us a review. On Twitter, my handle is Nathan Alibaba. We would be unable to do this show without our very own Dealmasters. Ahmed Ahmed is our editor. Christoph Blaschek is our booker slash project manager. Tyler Bella is our head of research. I'm Nathan Alibaba. You've been listening to Agency Dealmasters. This episode was brought to you by Account Insight, the B2B programmatic advertising platform for B2B agencies. In this four-part series, I sat down with co-founder and chief product officer, Tony Chamilias, to discuss the business, history, and how Account Insight helps B2B agencies deliver targeted, tailored ads to high-value companies. In this week's episode, Tony and I discuss our interview you've just listened to with Ricky Abbott, the president of Americas at Transmission. So, Tony, Ricky said that clients want a connected customer experience across different channels and and touch points. How do you guys at Account Insight think about creating a connected customer experience? I can see this is a question that comes always in all communications we have. And every every time we onboard a customer, it's, it's all about whether you fit and how can we make sure that as an organization, we can run an effective omni-channel strategy. Uh, so we, we see account-based advertising as part of the solution, a very strong part, but it's certainly not standalone. Where solutions work best is when you can orchestrate a piece of communication, a coherent piece of communication across different channels. So we from account-based advertising, we can support the layer from the top until the end, But certainly, you need to make sure that the communication is also consistent across field events, across direct mail, across email, across social. And it's not just uh, consistent, but it's also relevant. You need to be able to adapt your message to the stage of that company in the sales funnel. You may need to drive awareness communication at some time because they don't even know who you are. And you need to make sure that not just account-based advertising is pushing your brand, but everything else tells about the brand rather than talking about the products because you're still not able to engage them in a buying moment. But some other times, you've got to accelerate your, your marketing. You've got to empower your sales teams because you're 
already have this one-to-one communication. Now, from account-based advertising, we can make sure we provide the essential air cover and visibility to any group of companies, to any individual company, if that's needed, to make sure that when your sales teams reach through, when you talk to them, they've heard about you, they've got the right impression about you, they've already seen what you're about to talk about through other channels. And and this orchestration of the omnichannel communication, I think that's really the key answer, is having a connected customer experience. Make sure that channels don't work in silos, coordinate the messaging, and certainly account-based advertising is a very strong part of the picture because it, it amplifies the effect of all the other channels can give signals on what's relevant and not re- or not relevant, and you can have very personal customer experience and communications with your customers. We, we also touched on the role that brand plays in, in B2B decision-making. How important is brand marketing from your perspective? Oh, well, that's, that's the key question, really. I think it's really difficult to drive conversions if you don't have a strong brand. It's not that we think, it's that, that that's what we've seen, that's what research is telling us, that's what we see in the market. It's hard to expect that you can close any key deals from cold approaches. B2B buyers choose brands that they already recognize and respect. Uh, B2B buying is not as simple as consumer, so it involves many people, many decision makers, many people that may have never heard of you, that have an opinion about you which may not be correct, you can only change that by positioning your brand. Because you need to reach, impact, and influence every relevant employee. So when it comes to closing deals, you're already front of mind and in first line. That's where brand plays a big part, and that's where accounting insights helps in, in, in driving this exposure to your brands to a large number of relevant people in the in the to be companies um, we, we can we can think about the traditional sales activation activities as harvest activities so you're not creating demand by telemarketing you're identifying the demand and, and certainly by doing that you can close deals but the way to look upon brand building is really that it does deliver on the long-term growth. It helps bringing the new customers. So sales activation generally doesn't create demand. It helps capture what's already there, whereas brand building is what actually generates demand, mm. both in the long-term and the short-term. So it's, it's important for, for B2B companies to play both, to play short and long, to invest in share of voice, to make sure that they've got a strong share of voice so they can grow the share of market. <laughs>